0: you see Lost this week, man? I missed it. What happened? Ah, dude, they're on the island, they're off the island. Who could follow that shit?
1: So this all started when their plane crashed? That's Lost. Oh, right. You know, I met J.J. Abrams once, and I don't know what this means, but he said the island is just Hurley's dream. Welcome, everybody, to episode 37. In a row? Uh, From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast all about the television series Lost, and this week we're doing things a little differently as we are not talking about the television show itself, but of course, like we said, it's all things about the TV show Lost. Before we get into all that stuff, I am Kevin, he is Ben, and Ben, how are we doing this week?
0: Doing well, ready to do something a little different this week uh, with some of our
1: supplementary material. Well, I guess it's worth mentioning that between season three and four was the longest period of time between seasons of Lost to this point. I think it's about eight months between the end of season three and the beginning of season four.
0: That's about right. Yep. And it was so it was the first season where uh, the deal that uh, the producers of Lost had reached with ABC had gone into effect, where rather than two more full length seasons, which was what the producers had wanted. ABC reached a compromise with them to have three more seasons of 16 episodes each, essentially spreading the same number of seasons out around three years instead of two, which makes sense from the executive's perspective, because that gives three more years rather than two for people to get that lost fever and sell merchandise and keep the the publicity machine rolling and all that stuff. Uh, That does make sense to me, and then essentially – the producers just uh, had still had the same number of episodes remaining to work with as they were planning out the story.
1: Yeah, you don't wanna kill your cash cow. You wanna keep it alive as long as you can. Yeah. But that is from the pr- producer and writing and all that, the executive side of things. As a fan of Lost Band, watching this as it aired, you went through the the six episode mini arc, then the break and then back to full length of a season where no breaks took in between when it came back from its, its respite how did you feel about this compromise? Cause you weren't getting the six episode arc, but you also wouldn't be teased and then have to go away again. And then only for it to come back in the fall, this time you'd have to wait a longer period, but then it would all air consecutively in a row. How did yeah. that make you feel?
0: I think honestly, it was not that different for me because I think for every season of lost, when it finished, they always, almost all, all of them, the seasons ended on such a high note with such an incredible cliffhanger that, there was nothing that was going to make you feel better about having to wait any length of time to continue the story. So like it didn't matter if it was like three weeks or three years, you were kind of like, I I, I can't wait to get more lost right now. I want to know what's happening to this, this, and this. And just, there had to be some time period, some where you had to get over lost for a while. And so I would say like for my own mental sanity, I would maybe be obsessed with loss for another month or two after the season finale of season three, and then just had to move on to other things for a while. Maybe it's good practice for when the series finally ended and I had to move on with my life, you know?
1: <laughs> right. And you know, there's the old adage, how can, how can you miss me if I don't go away? So people from loss had to kind of miss it or else maybe the, if it was, if the break wasn't as long or it was continuous or they did, some sort of web thing for the entire period it was off the air. You wouldn't get that chance to kind of right. catch your breath and digest everything. So, yeah, yeah to, to an extent, I get it. I feel like I would there would definitely be a couple months where I couldn't stand it and then I, it would subside and you could kind of go back to your normal life and then you get excited again when it's it gets closer to the release.
0: Right. But- you start hearing rumors again. You start hearing, uh, you know, casting choices. I mean, there were a couple people that I knew online during that time frame that were so obsessed with loss that I was genuinely worried that they wouldn't make it. But
1: But they did. That's what the show does to people, I suppose. But the show did not go completely dark in this time period. They knew they were going to have this extended period. And instead of keeping people waiting until the... The spring of 2008 for new episodes, they did leave a little trail of breadcrumbs for people to follow to sort of fill in some of those gaps maybe people were asking about along the way.
0: Yeah, and that's where the Mobisodes come in, um, which is a really funny word. And you and I have been talking for a while about covering these, and uh, you had said, like, what do I call these again? Mobisodes? (laughs) Because it's such a weird little uh, term. Do you want me to talk a little bit about what that is and how that came about?
1: Yeah, because I think in in 2018, Mobisode seems like such an ancient foreign concept, especially mm-hmm. with the way that uh, digital distribution has come.
0: Yeah, I kind of liken it to how there was a very brief lifespan of uh, pagers in the 90s where, you know, we, we went so quickly from a time frame where you had to be tethered to a wall uh, to use a phone to being able to take a phone everywhere that pagers became obsolete really quickly. Uh, the same thing for Mobisodes. Anytime a new technology starts to get big, people are going to think about different applications for it. You know, it's, and it wasn't long before when phones became devices for recording video that uh, people got the idea of creating original content for phones. Specifically, companies would get an idea. Okay, well, how can we use a phone as a promotional device? So the Mobisodes are a deal that ABC made with Verizon to release these little two- or three-minute clips or scenes that would be made available to Verizon subscribers. And then a week later, each one would then go also go up on ABC.com. And you also have to remember this is like – right around the time when they were just starting to even dabble in the idea of like putting full episodes on uh, online of shows so you know looking at your phone and watching like a two or three minute video was kind of a novel concept like or something original produced content so it was a promotional tool largely and now the reason it's obsolete is because technology moves so quickly that everything's just intermixed phones are basically now pocket computers so you can watch hulu netflix youtube whatever on a phone and there's no need to distinguish between what was released for the mobile phone medium that doesn't even really mean anything anymore
1: you know what i mean no not at all i don't think (laughs) i ever experienced mobisodes ever through the through the time span that i had a i had a phone in this time i don't even know if i my phone could have gotten something like this back in 2008.
0: That was another thing um, that uh, people had pointed out in the season three finale with the flash forward. Uh, somebody mentioned a little later that uh, Jack's phone was a to something like a, a, a two thousand seven model or something, and a lot of people wrote it off as, "Oh, that could have just been a mistake." But then, else, other people were like, "No, that was probably a clue for us to get that flash forward." So, whereas Jack two thousand four, his phone probably couldn't have downloaded Mobisodes future beardy, we have to go back, Jack, could get Mobisodes. And now nobody even cares because a Mobisode is an obsolete concept. But we do have these 13 relics of history, which Mm -hmm. are 13 little scenes here. They call them the missing pieces. And basically they are just meant to sort of fill in little gaps of story throughout the first three seasons. Some of them are more comedic. Some of them are to provide some insight into the island mysteries and they're hit or miss. Some of them are good. Some of them are kind of like, eh, forgettable. But we thought we'd take some time to talk about them here. Kevin, did you watch these originally when they came out? Or You, you said you watched them on the Season 4 DVDs, but you watched them – like when I was showing you the show back in the mid 2000s, right?
1: I think so. Some of these, when I rewatched them, I did watch them on the extras of the season four DVD. It is also on YouTube uh, for mm-hmm. people who are, who are following along here. If you, if you feel like watching them I don't own the DVDs, if you're just streaming them, some of them, I feel like f- felt familiar. The music mm-hmm. between the, the, between each one felt familiar. So I feel like I probably watched it, but some were a little more clear than others.
0: Yeah, and that's a good thing you point out too about in terms of how to watch it. So if you own Lost DVDs or Blu-rays, uh, they are on the season four set. However, we're covering them now because they were released originally between seasons three and four of the show. Uh, and if you're, you know, if you want to make sure that you're completely spoiler-free of season four, and you don't want to move on to that that set, uh, if you have like the the DVDs. You can get them on YouTube. You just type in lost, missing pieces. There's probably half a dozen, half a dozen different YouTubers that have these, you know, cataloged and posted. So they're pretty easy to find and see. Different video qualities, of course, but but they are out there. You know, the thing about too about these mobisodes, Kevin, is that there's actually kind of a pretty straight line that you can draw between the mobisodes and this type of online content that was just Evolving at the time and the the issues that led to the writers strike of 2008 So I think it'll be interesting when we get to that point later midway through season four when we want to talk about the writers strike about how uh, how quickly things evolved in terms of online content and how those Conversations about how writers were being compensated for what they were what they were writing led to that strike so it's, it's just interesting historically to have a context for that before we actually dive into the episodes themselves or the Mobisodes themselves. But uh, I feel like overall they were a nice little way to sort of whet everybody's appetite for season four. And then there was a particularly there was one specific thing, actually a casting choice that was publicized prior to the Mobisodes coming out. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah, they had mentioned in between the two seasons, so we talked off air if we wanted to mention this, and I ultimately felt this isn't a spoiler because it is something that if you watch the show at the time, the people writing the show made the viewers aware that Harold Perrineau, who plays Michael, would be returning to the cast in season four. So if you're watching these mobisodes, 13 of them, and roughly half of them include Michael in some way or fashion, you might be wondering why the heck is this guy who hasn't been on the show for an entire season featured so prominently in some of these? Well, the reason is because we knew he was coming back at the time, so the fans who are watching this along – knew that he was coming back and got to get some of these puzzle pieces put together before he would ultimately return to the show for the fourth season. So sorry if you're mad at us for revealing that, but again, I don't feel it was a spoiler at the time because they, they, they announced it. The people officially announced it to the audience. that he was coming back. We sort
0: of go by the rule that if it's something that you would have known as a lost, as a, as a dedicated lost viewer, as the show was airing such as a casting choice that was really widely publicized, that that would inform how you watch it today. So, yeah, Harold Perrineau announced his returning, and so he features really prominently in these. So our first one is called The Watch. I'm going to do a couple sentence summaries of each one, and then we'll just make any any uh, notes that we have about them or, or observations. Uh, with this one, this is a flashback that I think fits roughly uh, in the era. It's, it's actually a off-island flashback, so like before the plane crash. Uh, Christian Shepherd joins Jack on the beach. This is shortly before Jack's wedding to Sarah. He gives Jack a watch that his father gave to him and tells him that he's making the right choice by marrying Sarah. He asks that if Jack ever has a child, that he treat him better than Christian treated Jack. Now, with this one, Kevin, I'll tell you, people were really anticipating these MOBISODES. For all the reasons we just stated, there was a huge gap of time between Seasons 3 and Season 4, so people wanted anything they could get. And when this came, it hit with a pretty resounding thud, because (laughs) what's the first thing they gave us? A Jack flashback.
1: They gave us a Jack flashback, reminding us of the wedding episode, which we can agree was not the strongest flashback that Loss has provided. All I could think about watching this was the watch speech from Pulp Fiction that Christopher Walken so expertly gives. <laughs> that's
0: a good, I'd never drawn that connection, but that's funny. Yeah, yeah, people were just so over Jack flashbacks by this point. I mean, everybody had, uh, I think everybody appreciated the brilliance of the flash forward thing, um, but it didn't really a, a provide any insights to the island mysteries. I remember being kind of annoyed by this one at the time. I will say, though, that uh, when I watched it this time, I, I appreciated it a little bit more. I think it just helps make clear that Jack's relationship with his father wasn't always terrible, that there were some positive moments between the two of them. And I feel like this is one. I think it sets the tone for some character development for Jack in future seasons. So I appreciated it a little bit more this time than previously, but yeah, it was not a a great way to start these Mobisodes off.
1: Well, to to be fair, it's a good thing they started with this one because, uh, because a, there was nowhere to go, but up B (laughs) and you put some other ones out there. And then this one, I feel like it would have been, an even harder thud that it was met with.
0: Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, well, uh, the next one we jump to here is I think one that people responded a lot better to called The Adventures of Hurley and Frogurt." <laughs> now, Frogurt has been mentioned once before, very briefly. He was referred to in the episode SOS where Bernard was trying to build his giant SOS sign for, the, uh, uh, to, for a plane to see so they could get rescued. And he was mentioned as one of the people that was initially going to help build it but then quit. So he is a random uh, background character uh, amongst the 40-some survivors. Uh, but he gets his debut appearance here in this MOBISODE. Frogert catches Hurley swiping some Dharma Cabernet from Rose and Bernard's shelter. He tells Hurley that he wants a shot at Libby, but Hurley tells him that he and Libby have moved way past laundry and that he's going to on a picnic date with her. Frogert says that if Hurley can't close the deal with Libby, it's Neil time now and forever. <laughs> and he stomps off. And so his his real name is Neil. Frogert's obviously the nickname. So he goes, it's Neil time. I, I thought this was funny because this was another one of those characters where the producers would tease us about them. Oh, yeah, eventually you're going to see this character. And sure enough, we eventually got Frogert.
1: I feel like if we were doing our uh, superlatives for this, it's Neil time may have been my quote of the mobisodes. And he also probably would have been my asshole idiot for all of them, too. So (laughs) uh, definitely made a lasting impression on me.
0: I actually did do a couple of quotes, and this was one of them. I just, I just kind of made note. I wasn't doing like an official best quote of the Mobisodes or anything, but it's Neil time was uh, was great, especially coming from this guy. Uh, I guess let's say a physical contrast between him and Hurley because he's kind of the skinny little guy, and kind of standing up to Hurley with the, all the bravado that of somebody who who's trying to intimidate Hurley, but. Now let me ask you this kevin as a as a Simpsons well I, I don't know if you term yourself a Simpsons expert, I kind of see you that way since i guess comparatively uh but did did the Simpsons create the term Frogart or was that introduced? did they co-opt that from something else?
1: It feels like it would have been early enough in the in the Simpsons timeline where they would have made that mm-hmm. portmanteau
0: mm-hmm yeah, but and Froger was a huge like it became a fad in the nineteen nineties.
1: Sure, but I I can't say with any certainty that they were the one who, who coined that term. I don't
0: remember any earlier in my life that I that that I heard the term Froger before the Halloween special where the guy in like the weird mystic shop says we also sell frozen yogurt, which I call Froger, mm-hmm. um, and it became. I mean, if unless I'm mistaken, that became something that's now. You know, used as a term, frogurt, frozen yogurt. But only other thing. Now, I thought this one, I, this one was went over much better with fans because everybody loves Hurley. Everybody likes a little humor in a Hurley episode. The one creepy factor to think about with this one is that tragically, Ana Lucia and Libby were probably being murdered by Michael at the same time this conversation was happening. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe I shouldn't have gone there, but. Um, the whole idea was that he was getting the wine while Libby was getting the blankets, and um, yeah, that didn't end well. But that's the way it happens on the island sometimes. Have you ever that, that remind? That's like kind of if you've ever watched one of those videos of the, of the compilation videos that shows like the plane crash from different perspectives. Have you ever seen mm-hmm. one of those? Uh, yes. Yeah, like you should. Yeah, if you haven't seen one of those, you should check it out because it'll show like overlay videos of like Desmond trying to stop the failsafe at the same time that everybody is like getting thrown around in the playing cabin at the same time that the others are watching it fly over the island. That's just the way the island is everything different stuff's happening everywhere.
1: But I think that the, the, the mobisode itself is pretty funny. Yeah, it's, it's funny, <laughs> but Neil comes off pretty poorly in it. I'll think yeah. So. Neil, yeah.
0: And, and, uh, and maybe we haven't seen the last of Neil, who knows? The third one is called King of the Castle. This takes place during the time that Jack uh, stays with the others, I guess about a week period in, uh, Season three, as Kate and Said and and Locke are on the way to go and retrieve him. Ben and Jack play chess in Ben's house. Ben comments that Jack has some skill and invites him to stay with them. Jack declines, of course. Uh, And Ben tells him that while he intends to let Jack leave, the island may not let him go. He also says that the day may come when Jack wants to come back to the island. But, of course, Jack balks at that idea. And then uh, it looks like Ben wins their chess game. I felt like this one was a little bit forced. It's kind of like, ah, ah. See, ha, he predicted that. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm. Um, I thought it was better than you maybe thought it was. I also liked how there was some allusion to like Jack says something about him blowing up the submarine and he's like, Oh, I'm not going to do it. So you could already tell the plan for him to get, to get locked to do. It was already in motion. Yeah, I thought it was kind of a, I don't know. I thought it was kind of cute knowing where, where Jack would end up if they had this in there. And I like always seeing Michael Emerson and uh, Jack interact with
0: each other. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also, it's interesting to think about these characters spending time together. I mean, we knew that, that Jack spent a week with the others And we saw the little thing of the brief little scene of Tom throwing him a football and stuff like that. But the idea that, you know, Jack was just, oh, I'm going to go chill at Ben's house and play some chess, you know, that's just kind of a a crazy thing to think about considering how much those two guys hate each other. Right. King of the Castle. So then our next one is called The Deal. Uh, And this takes us back to season two uh, and actually to the episode called Three Minutes. So this is like a flashback within a flashback almost because. This is the episode where Michael. we get to see Mike. What, what happens to Michael after he runs away from the camp to go find Walt. Uh, so it's an extra scene during the time frame that he was being held captive in the fake others camp. And Juliet comes and visits him, which is kind of cool because she wasn't actually cast on the show yet, but now we can do this flashback. Uh, she tells him that the others have decided to let him have the boat that he asked for, once he goes and frees Ben, she also says that she's glad that they're leaving because Walt is not an ordinary boy. She calls him special. She assures him that Ben can get him off the island, uh, saying that she once made a deal with him as well to stay on the island in exchange for saving her sister's life. Michael asks why we should make that why she would make that deal if she had to say. And then Juliet kind of compares her love to, of her sister with Michael's love for his son. You know, wouldn't you do anything if you could you know, save him? Uh, and then she leaves. Um, so just kind of a conversation. But I, I mentioned this in the term a, in the episode Expose as well, where Elizabeth Mistral was introduced to us in the Others' barracks. So she looked like she was kind of dressing in normal, everyday clothes. And then we see this flashback of her wearing the sort of the Others' disguises. Uh, kind of interesting and you see these two characters interact who would never have interacted outside of a flashback so that's kind of cool what'd you think of this one
1: yeah i did like it too it gave just a little more context to everything that was going on with michael and how exactly that plan was arranged Uh, it's not something i necessarily thought i had to see everything through but it is interesting that juliet was the one who was chosen to do it i like that they did
0: one thing that i kind of increasingly get the sense of is that using the term special to describe someone on lost is kind of important because i think it's the closest that lost ever gets to like attributing somebody with superpowers almost yeah it's like a shorthand for saying that this person's going to have some sort of supernatural ability walt is of course the most prominent i think version of that almost like like the x-men where there's not like they don't give you an expert you know explanation it's not like walt was doused in radioactive goo and suddenly had a power but that there's something that he's he's special he's got some kind of power you know, you can think of other examples like the girl who survived uh, dying uh, in the Echo flashback, or Isaac of Aluru, the, the the faith healer, that sort of thing. There are people in the other in the Lost Universe who are quote unquote special, and it's just kind of like a premise that you have to accept on the show is that there's going to be a certain people that demonstrate some abilities, and that actually leads into one of our our later Mobisodes here, but. Uh, We've got another one here uh, with Elizabeth Mitchell called Operation Sleeper, and this one is Juliet wakes Jack up late at night in his shelter on the beach and reveals to him that she is still working for Ben, checking to see which women are pregnant so that they can be kidnapped. Jack expresses his dismay and asks why Juliet is telling him this, and she tells him that son will die in a month if they don't get off the island. She also says that she is done living Ben Linus's dream. So this takes place roughly between episodes 17 and 20 of season three, this time period where Jack and Juliet were sort of keeping to themselves and everybody was sort of getting increasingly suspicious of them. Um, I don't know about you, Kevin, this one didn't really do much for me. It's a conversation that you could have easily just played out in your imagination. And this doesn't really add anything.
1: Same. I almost had the vibe and I know this is strange, but when Juliet was sitting next to, to Jack's you know, sleeping quarters, I was like, Jack has a pretty big tent overall. <laughs> like it, it, you're almost felt like one of those things where when you watch, like, I think of this with Buffy all the time, when you watch uh, the season where she's in college in her dorm room is huge. But in the reality, dorm rooms are really you know tight and jammed together. Oh, okay.
0: It okay. felt like
1: in real life would be a lot more close quartered and and not as not as beautifully put together as they've been able to do with all the trees and stuff. So uh, I yeah. don't know. That's the only thing I kind of took from this.
0: Well, as I've said, they do seem to have an endless supply of tarps on the island for some reason that the, the, there was a tarp delivery or something inside the cargo of that plane. Uh, so they can just build these endlessly huge uh, shelters sure but but it also looks like
1: you know a little too perfect oh sure
0: yeah sure yeah yeah it's one of the things we might uh have a chance to talk about actually when we talk about the game is um that uh you sort of see the beach camp evolve over the course of three seasons and i know i noticed that when i was playing the game too and things get considerably comfier for them i think sawyer probably has it the luckiest didn't he have like a uh he actually had a found one of the airline seats to have in his inside his shelter. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, this was pretty unremarkable. You don't really need to watch this conversation to understand that it happened. Um so it doesn't really add anything new. But we go to number 6 which is called room 23 and so already you're like mm. In the research station on Hydra Island, Juliet and Ben are outside of room 23 and there are some alarms going off. Uh, Juliet, who is obviously talking about Walt, says that he has done it again uh, and that Beatrice, Tom, etc., cetera, are all afraid of him. Ben insists that he's just a child and refuses to turn him back over to Michael. So Juliet shows him the outside of the building where a number of birds lie dead at the base of the window to room 23. Uh, so there's a lot to pick apart in this one. We get back to room 23, which is our, you may remember, Kevin, is our hypnosis room where we saw, uh, I guess, Carl was, I think, strapped to a chair and being um, like uh, hit with all those uh, hallucinogenic, well, I guess, images and and video
1: and and, uh, music and stuff like that as like a punishment of some kind. Right. It seems like if you're being insubordinate to what the others want, they use that to try to, I guess, get you back under their wing, so to speak under their control.
0: And I had forgotten until watching this, that back in season two, in that same episode that we, uh, the three minutes episode that when Beatrice, uh, which who is miss clue, when she brought Walton to talk to Michael at a certain point, when he was, he was saying something wasn't supposed to or something like that. She said, do you want to go back in the room again? I had forgotten about that, Kevin. I don't know if you put that together. I don't think I did. Yeah. So she said, do you want to go back in the room again? So pretty obvious to me, pretty clear that this is what she's talking about, that basically they had been trying to use room 23 to keep Walt subdued somehow and that his powers were kind of manifesting. If you also recall going back to the season two finale, this MOBA sode also uh, ties into the scene at the end of season two where Ben is talking to Michael and says that he got more than they got more than they bargained for with Walt. Yeah, this ties a few different episodes together, and then you've got the episode uh, special back in season one where you have the flashback where the bird hits um, the window when Walt gets upset. You remember yeah, that? I do remember that. Yeah. So what do you think is going on with all this stuff with the birds? <sighs> that
1: so I kind of thought it was just a thing when we when we saw the flashback originally with his mom that his just frustrations could will things to happen in real life but now there seems to be some sort of nature connection specifically with birds. And now I don't know what to make of that.
0: <laughs> well, I think one thing that is worth pointing out is I I, I remember reading somewhere that birds do have sort of like a, a finely tuned sense of like how to navigate that usually lets them dodge things like windows. Sometimes you'll hear people ask the question, you know, how come more, how come more birds don't hit windows? You know, like if they're you know, they're birds, they don't understand what windows are. And it, it looks like it's a wide open area. How come more birds don't fly straight into windows? And it's because they have some sort of like, internal navigation senses that that help them avoid physical objects or, or, or things that they can't fly through. I don't know, I'm, I could be completely talking out of my ass because I'm not a scientist. But if Walt has some ability to mess with that, or if his getting upset or angry, just sort of channels a certain type of energy that then affects birds, I like this MOBISODE, I guess is all I can really say, because I feel like it gives it gives us a lot to think about. Uh, this is the first of the MOBISODES that really give us a, much, a lot to think about from the mythology perspective.
1: Right, I think this is what a lot of the fans wanted out of the MOBISODES.
0: Right. So then you transition to the next one, which is another comedic one. Uh, this is called Arst and Crafts. And it's another one that also gives us a chance to get a little bit more time with one of our sort of favorite background survivor characters. So Leslie Arce, who we know infamously exploded in the season one finale, uh, and we've actually seen since then in uh, Expose, we get another scene with him. And in this scene, we have uh, Sun and Jin are sorting through laundry. They're talking a little bit about the other people on the plane crash uh, because at this point, he doesn't know yet that Sun – this actually looks like it's pretty early on, actually. uh, But he doesn't know that she speaks English. And then Hurley and Michael are hanging out nearby, too. And Ars comes running up to everybody complaining about this whole idea of moving to the caves. So that I Kevin, wait, I think that was like what episode five or six or something? Like
1: very, was, very early in the timeline. Yeah, really, really early. So
0: he's like, oh, everybody knows there's moisture in the caves, which means it's gonna attract germs and bugs that'll lay eggs in your mouth. And then he goes over to Sun and Jin and does this stupid thing that that oh people my God. do. People do it in real life. That's yeah. what's sad about it is that, like, if you talk loud enough, somebody who doesn't understand your language will understand you. And so he's trying to get them to, uh, like, if there's a vote to go to the caves to vote no. You know, Michael's like, they don't understand you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so he's all against going to the caves. And then the punchline at the end is he hears the smoke monster noise in the background and says, uh, I'll see you guys at the caves. As if he has any idea whether he's safer at the caves from the uh, creature that nobody's seen up until this point. But it was still funny to see this guy back. The I forget the name of the actor, but the guy who plays uh, Leslie Arst.
1: What would you think of this one? Yeah, maybe Arst would have been my asshole idiot for the episode. <laughs> well, he would deserve it. <laughs> um, that's uh, Daniel Roebuck who plays Arst. Daniel Roebuck, okay.
0: He's a fun character. He's one of those where I feel like if they hadn't killed him like within two episodes of introducing him, he could have like popped in from time to time to have a funny little scene. And that's pretty much what we get here. Right, um, doesn't even make it past season one. Doesn't make it past season one. Yeah. So a little comedic one there. Then we have our next one's called buried secrets. Uh, and we see Sun uh, kind of watching Jin to see that he's not looking. And then she goes into the forest and digs, digs a hole with her bare hands and uh, tries to bury. She takes out what we see is a fake California ID. So if we remember all the way back that far in the series that she had been planning to leave Jin and start a new life for herself in the United States. So she has this fake California ID and she tries to bury it. But then Michael shows up and he's running around looking for Vincent and they, I guess this is, midpoint in season one where he knows that she speaks English, but not everybody knows that yet. That was what I got. You know, she explains that she was gonna leave Jen and everything and and he tries to comfort her. And then they kind of look at each other and they almost kiss when Vincent breaks things up. Now, Kevin, this was something that people had talked about back in season one was whether or not there would become a thing between son and Michael just based on the different, circumstances of their storylines back in that season what did you think of this one
1: see the thing i like a lot of the, one of the things i like the most about the relationship between son and michael is that it's not sexual in nature yeah and so this to me i just sort of rolled my eyes at it because you know how you and i both feel about like the love quadrangle and it just that you want to talk about force this felt forced to me
0: yeah, yeah, I think forced is a good word. You can even tell it in the actors. I, it doesn't even seem like they really have good chemistry or anything. Like, I don't, that's not anything against either of the two actors. It's just that this just kind of seems something like maybe should have better been left as just fan canon, you know? Right, Unnatural is how I would yeah, say it would Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, Sun mentions the idea of the island being like a punishment again. So you kind of revisit the, that, that theme. But other than that, I'm not a big fan of this one. Um, We go next to number nine, episode nine, which is Tropical Depression. And we have another episode with Arst. Uh, And another interesting combination. Just Michael and Arst this time, just the two of them. So Arst is running around catching insects, which is kind of neat because that ties in with what we found out in the expose flashback, was that he had been collecting island insects thinking that he had some new species, uh, which – I think it's probably unlikely that he had discovered 14 new species. I think he was just trying to make himself feel better about having something to do while he was stuck on the island. He's catching an insect in a jar, and then Michael shows up, and Michael asks him about the weather for the raft launch. Now, if you remember back in season one, Kevin, that one of the things that was supposed to be like a, I guess, sort of set like a... A ticking clock scenario for the pressure of getting the raft launched was that Arst was telling them, Oh, we're about to start monsoon season, and if you don't get out of here now with the raft, you're gonna get pushed the wrong way down the ocean and you'll never find you know a, a boat or anything. Well, basically, in this episode, in this Mobisode, he says that he made that whole thing up just because he was so he was so intent on them getting that raft launched so they could get the hell off the island. Michael has to contain his frustration at finding out that basically Ars fed them a bunch of bullshit. And then he has to listen to Arst's sob story about going to Australia to meet a woman he met online. So this is where we find out why Arst was on the plane, but he used uh, a friend's picture. So he didn't represent himself for who he really was. And then this woman bailed on him at dinner. So Michael has to finally kind of beg out of the conversation by saying, I, you know, I'd love to feel sorry for you, but we are all in a crappy situation. And he assures Ars that they're going to come back and rescue everybody. So this was funny, but I was a little weirded out by the whole idea that it kind of completely changes the circumstances of season one, if this is indeed canon.
1: Yeah. And
0: Ars was a catfisher. He catfished yeah. Yeah. OK, that's right. I forgot. Yeah. I forgot about that term. There's a word for that. So, I mean, I guess that kind of fits in with his personality because he does seem like somebody who really struggles to – he just doesn't have the self-confidence to really be uh, successful uh, in a lot of avenues of his life. (laughs) But, yeah, so I guess apparently he made the whole thing about monsoon season up according to what he says here, and uh, Michael just has to kind of deal with that. But I guess at this point they're getting ready to leave on the raft, so it doesn't really matter anyway. Let's see. Our next one is – probably my second favorite i really like this one it's called jack meet ethan ethan jack ethan comes by jack's shelter to deliver a suitcase full of medicine that he's found in the jungle he thanks jack for showing strong leadership and for thinking ahead specifically to surviving on the island and the fact that they're probably going to have to deliver claire's baby he confides in jack that his wife and child died in childbirth and expresses his hope that the rescue boats are on the way This one, Kevin, I love because I feel like it filled in so many blanks with Ethan uh, in terms of understanding some of his motivations.
1: Yeah. My takeaway from this was that the suitcase was a plant, that it wasn't truly found in the wreckage. It's a bunch of medicine that he is giving to to Jack, I guess, for the purposes of drugging up Claire. I I think that they just probably came up with it as a way
0: to – like they were going to keep Claire alive – that they had to provide Jack with some medicine that would enable him to do that. Cause Jack or Ethan knew that Jack, Ethan knew that he himself couldn't provide medical care for Claire and keep his cover. Whereas Jack's a doctor. So they're like, Hey, let's just give a bunch of things that, you know, she might need to the doctor and say, we found them in the jungle. And yeah, cause I mean, I think you even, if they even show this suitcase full of medicine in a previous season, there's like a shot of it as they're going through luggage. And, uh, I think at the time you're just supposed to assume that that's like, that they got all of the medication that they could find out of everybody's luggage and kind of pulled it into one place for Jack, like his, his medicine cabinet, but that a lot of this stuff came from the others is kind of a new reveal and makes sense. If you think about it, It, you know, it's not unlike what uh, Ethan was doing in terms of, uh, providing the injections to Claire and, uh, And then on top of that, you've got this idea. I mean, you learn basically from the context clues and what we know, what we can infer from what Ethan says is that he got married to somebody on the island, she got pregnant, and because of the issue on the island where a woman's immune system turns against the baby, both she and the baby were killed. And that to me informs a lot of why Ethan may have been so obsessed with the whole idea of solving the pregnancy issue and with Claire in particular.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's I I think that's spot on. I think that's exactly what you're supposed to take away from it.
0: My favorite quote from all of the Mobisodes comes from this one where, when Ethan and, and Jack are talking and Ethan's you know helping talking about helping Jack out, Jack says, "Nice to know I'm not alone." And Ethan looks at him, practically looks at the camera, and says, <laughs> "You're definitely not alone." <laughs>
1: I love that one. It would have been great if they just broke the fourth wall and he did that. And then Jack is just like, who are you looking at? <laughs>
0: Uh, our next one, number 11, um, this one uh, struck me as one that could be like an always sunny title card. Jin has a temper tantrum on the golf course. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. And you could totally throw that music in there now if you hey, wanted. Hey, Ben, get, what happens in this one? <laughs> well, in this, in this episode, uh, there's a golf game with Hurley and Michael, and Jin misses a hole and loses He then flips out in what I have in my notes written as a happy Gilmore moment, complaining in Korean about being stuck on the island, not being able to understand anyone, not being able to have even one moment of happiness. He curses the ball for not being able to get in the hole. Hurley and Michael are just kind of watching this whole thing unfold, and then Hurley comments that maybe they should take a break from golf for a while. So if anything, this maybe explains why we didn't see them playing any golf after season two. We moved on to ping pong that point, uh, but I think uh, this was just kind of a funny little thing to see Jin sort of lose it and have one moment where all of his frustration of being trapped on the island with a whole bunch of people who he can't even understand just kind of comes to the surface in one moment, and he kind of blames a little golf ball for everything.
1: I one of and this is obviously well before Jin has become pals with the people on the island where he is in season three. And yeah. I love one of the lines where he's like, I can't believe I lost to Hurley and Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they had started to patch things up at
0: this point because one thing that he refers to is the whole the fact that he's still got the uh, handcuff on. He can't get right, the handcuff right.
1: On. right. So it was
0: after that, but they still they weren't best buds or anything. I think the the real bonding moment between him and Michael is when they, you know, survive the whole thing of going on the raft, getting captured, escaping and coming back. That sort of cements their friendship. But uh, yeah, right now there, he's just lamenting that he loses to these two guys. But yeah, it's it's a pretty funny one. Uh, The next one we've got is called the envelope and it is an extended version of the scene when Juliet burns her hand when she's making the muffins. Uh, So this was like, this goes back to the season three opener Yet again, because we've already revisited this scene once, we saw the opening scene of season three, and then in episode 16, One of Us, we saw the same scene again where they added some stuff onto the end, and before that, Juliet had gotten a copy of Ben's x-rays. So in this scene, the older woman, whose name is Amelia, uh, who is the one who knocks on Juliet's door at the beginning of the book club scene, they're in there uh, in the kitchen together. She's Juliet's running cold water over her hand after she burned her hand. And so before everybody else gets there, uh, Amelia is asking, you know, what's wrong? And she says, oh, did Ben t- tell you how he feels? Juliet says, like, it's not that that's got her upset. She thinks that they're all in a lot of trouble. And she's about to show Amelia the envelope that has Ben's x-rays, which she conveniently has hidden under the silverware in her kitchen drawer when the doorbell rings, which then <coughs> leads afterward to the, the book club scene. This was different because this was the only Mobisode that was actually not filmed as a Mobisode. It is actually just a deleted scene that they removed from the the episode. Now, I one thing I couldn't understand was did they delete it from episode 1 or episode 16 of season 3? Like when would that have been put in the show if they had included it? I don't know. Because I think it wouldn't have. Been, a lot of that stuff wouldn't have made sense in the very beginning of season three, right? So it had to have been the Juliet flashback episode,
1: right? So we're led to believe, I guess, that the envelope has the X-rays of Ben,
0: right? Yeah, this one was one of those ones to me falls in the category of uh, doesn't really add anything. You know, we know that the X-rays are there. We know she's seen them. I guess the only thing you could say, maybe, is added is that Juliet has this idea that if the island is not healing Ben, that there's something really wrong going on. Right. So, did you what what, what did you think of this one? It's fine. Yeah. Meh. Yeah. Eh. And then we get to number thirteen. So it begins. This was the one that made waves uh, on the uh, message boards and and so forth. Yeah, Um, I can see why. (laughs) Funnily enough, I was was just doing a little searching around, and I I even showed you a screenshot of this, but I managed to find an 11-year-old quote from myself in a message board thread from when this first aired. That just said, what did it say? I can't remember what I wrote on there, but like, that was awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) that period
1: was period awesome exclamation points. Yeah, that was about it. So we
0: uh, start roaming through the grass at a really low perspective, and it doesn't take long for us to figure out here that we are seeing things from Vincent's perspective as he runs through the jungle. Uh, This is immediately after the crash, so you kind of hear some some crash-related sound effects, uh, and you see him kind of running around and inspecting some luggage and debris. He hears a whistle and he sees Christian Shepard. Christian calls Vincent over to him and he tells Vincent that he needs to go wake up his son in the the bamboo forest and sends him off and says that he has work to do. Then we cut basically to the very first scene of the entire series. Jack wakes up in the jungle floor and looks over and Vincent is uh, coming out of the, the trees there and sort of hops over him to, to sort of wake him up uh, before disappearing back into the jungle. So, wow, quite a different perspective on the very beginning of the series.
1: Uh, Kevin, what'd you think? Uh, yeah, that definitely changes everything. So I guess Vincent can see, he can either see Jack's father too or – something special with Vincent, I guess.
0: Well, so there's still this debate over what would we term like a hallucination or a vision? What would we say is definitely the smoke monster? Because we know that the smoke monster can take the form of people that the survivors know or are from their past. They did this with Yemi to echo. So is that what this is? Is this just something completely different? You know, it might, it would make more sense if Jack is seeing Christian shepherd, because it's somebody that Jack knows. But Vincent doesn't know who Christian Shepard is. And yet here Christian Shepard is telling, you know, and he's completely a physical object. He's not just a vision because he touches Vincent. You know, he pets Vincent and sends him off into the jungle. So, man, this is crazy and a lot to think about here. Are we um, sure
1: that Vincent and Christian Shepard didn't cross paths off the island? I guess that's a good point.
0: Maybe even Vincent. And and, and you know what? This gives us something that I think that uh, a, a lot of people had uh, – Kind of half kiddingly, but half seriously asked for, which was a Vincent flashback. Yeah, I would have loved that. <laughs> I mean, it would have been fun to do an, an episode that was entirely you, you could film it from Vincent's perspective. You could have a story take place and, you know, be able to understand the characters and everything, but have like a day in the a life of the island from Vincent's perspective. Uh, this is as close as we get to that, but um, uh, it was really fun, uh, and then also really baity in terms of giving us some some mythology stuff to chew on. Mm-hmm. So that's the last of the Mo I th- I would say probably I would say probably about three quarters of them were ones I I thought were either enjoyable from a humor perspective or added some some insight to the characters of the story, and a few misses in there. What do you, do you think over all of these?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is if you watch all these back-to-back, it totals about 31 minutes, so it's not even the totality of one lost episode. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're thinking from the time spent consideration, I think it's a worthwhile thing to watch.
0: Yeah, I agree. And then also, you know, from back then and at the time, uh, if this was all you were getting once a week for, uh, I guess that'd be three months, uh, leading up to the new season, you uh, hey you take what you for, can get it's that beggars can't be choosers thing
1: <laughs> right exactly so, um, um it's not as big of a time suck as the next thing we're going to talk about uh and we yeah talk about, and if you want to talk about the the worthwhile in this comparison i think the mobisodes definitely overshadow the lost video game that we are going to be getting into now you played this back in the day correct
0: Yes. I, when it came out, I was such a huge Lost fan. I did not even own a PlayStation. I didn't own any next gen consoles or what were, you know, the current consoles at the time, but I had a roommate who did. And so I bought the game just to be able to play it on my roommate's PlayStation, knowing that I would probably never be able to play it again once I moved out.
1: <laughs> right. Well, but, you, but, uh, I'm glad you didn't purchase a whole new system just for it. Cause uh, I don't think that would have been God, worth. God. No. <laughs> <very> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so I, I have never played it until now. I decided to play it for the sake of the show. I played on Xbox 360. As Ben said, it was on PlayStation 3. It was also available on, the, on Windows. Uh, and then it came out for Steam, the website, about a year after the release. But now it's no longer available there, and I don't know why. Huh. Uh, but either way, I purchased a used copy on eBay for $7. That includes shipping. My brother, who was a big Lost fan back in the day, he also played it to completion, got all 1,000 points or whatever in the game. It told me it would take about six hours to play, so I thought, all right, that's not a major time investment. You know, it's about triple the time we spend per week on this episode anyways, the watching two episodes. But, uh, you know, it's a video game. I wanted to see what the, what the hubbub was about. Uh, The one warning that I had coming into this game, which is something I can definitely echo the sentiments of, is the voice acting in this game. (laughs) Uh, Now, voice acting was still not as prominent as it is in games today. In today's games, it feels like it's almost an expectation. But for a lot of the consoles, even just a generation or two before this came out, it was not something that was featured in a lot of games. Now, I guess maybe for your PlayStation Xbox, since they're on discs versus uh, cartridges, it was something that became more and more doable. Uh, but there's a lot of lost characters here, and only six of them are voiced by their actual actors. You have Michael Emerson, who voices Ben. You have Andrew Divoff, who was Mikhail. He does uh, his own voice. Henry Ian Cusick does the Desmond voiceovers. Emily Duravin does it for, for Claire. Yoonjin Kim is there for Son, And then MC Ganey does Tom's. Now, the thing is, though, is none of those six characters have a ton of dialogue in the game. So you almost wonder if it was just they were able to do do them because it's not as huge of a time commitment. Do you know what the reason why they got so few actors or actresses to do the voices for the game? I'm I'm
0: sure that it's all the inner workings of Hollywood where every actor has their own like agent that's negotiating how much money it's going to cost to dedicate their voice talents. It's whether the the actor even wants to do it. Like I mean, Terry O'Quinn, for example, uh, he he generally doesn't do much outside of the actual show itself he was a lot less common in like public appearances and premieres and things like that than than most of the other actors yeah i think on top of that it's also just that let them at least say uh, you can say in promotion you can say that it features characters features actors from the show you don't have to say it has all of them right some of them
1: (laughs) it's and i mean that's just six of the characters in the game you're interacting with jack kate Michael, Sawyer, Hurley, Locke, Juliet. None of them have their actual voices. Charlie as well. And some of them are better than others. Charlie and Hurley aren't so bad. But then you get to a character like Locke who sounds absolutely nothing like uh, like his real voice. Same yeah, with Locke people, like, is sort.
0: terrible. I don't know how they came up with – I don't know how like they were in a studio recording and – You know, a professional voice actor did his best Terry O'Quinn impression and somebody's like, yep, that's a wrap. Right. Maybe they didn't even
1: try. (laughs) Um, But either ways, this came out February 26, 2008 in the United States. So it came out between episodes four and five of season four. Uh, But the way video games develop, there are no season four spoilers in it. But you definitely want to watch through season three, I'd say, before you play this. Yeah. You play a male character. You don't get to choose who you play or anything at this. You're uh, a survivor of the crash who has amnesia, and you spend a lot of the game trying to find your luggage and some other things to try to remember who you are, and you talk to the other survivors to lead your way. To its benefit and its detriment, it stays very true to the show in the sense that The wreckage looks similar to the show. You're going to the Swan Station where the the hatch gets blown up and it has the numbers on the side. You get to see the smoke monster, which the smoke monster actually does look pretty cool. And you avoid it by hiding in the same sort of trees. You go to the Black Rock, the big ship. The coolest part for me of the whole game is exploring both the Flame and the Hydra stations. Just running around those and seeing everything to me was the best part of the game entirely.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed those parts too. I would, I would agree. I think just in general that exploring the environments that are established on the show uh, is the most fun part of the game. And and like you were just saying about the Hydra and the flame, um, I just remember being going down into the hatch for the very first time in this game, and being able to freely walk around in this environment that was such a huge part of the lost mythology. Was really, really cool and being able to just look around and see stuff like the computer, the, you know, the recreational area, the, the mural on the wall, like the little path that led to the, uh, the, the big uh, ladder area where they came down in the beginning, uh, you know, all that stuff that that just being able to explore those areas that you were so iconic from the show was, was probably the most fun part of the game.
1: Yeah, I agree, and and even things like the blast door map you can look at with a more keen eye if you're yeah. if you're so inclined. Yeah. And the thing about the game is they they did say that things like the blast door map or even the room you get to see the room that has all the magnetism in it in this game, which I don't think you get to ever see in the show. Right. And you get to put that down. They say yes, that is canon. That that is exactly what it would have been in the show as well. But the the only thing that I say to its detriment, it's so close to the show, is as somebody who's watched all of this stuff, I feel like it's less exciting to learn some of these things than it would be if you're just playing this game. Then again, I don't know why you would play this game if you weren't a Lost fan. That's kind of the long and short of it.
0: That's true. They um, did. They definitely did not make this game to appeal to mass audiences. This was meant to appeal to fans of the show.
1: Right. Which, again, that's that's such a hard thing to um, to reconcile is you're going to get the fans who are like, well, this isn't accurate to the show. Why'd you make it this way? But at the same time, it's like, oh, I guess I need to go find dynamite to, to bust open this door to do it. And you're like, oh, I know that's in the Black Rock. Like, that's not a major thing for me to go discover. But then I have to, like, talk to Hurley before going to that for some reason. And I don't I don't even remember. Well, um, and they have they have things set up to like they have this whole barter system for supplies.
0: Right. And so like you can talk to different characters and they'll have things that they can offer you, but you have to trade like six water bottles or three, three mangoes or, or what have you. And, and uh, so there's some things that are sort of set up to be like function as video game, like sort of tropes or norms that I don't know if they fit in so well with the, the lost universe.
1: I don't think so either, because at one point you need a gun to shoot the dynamite. But I also have a lighter on me that Michael gave me. So why would I not just be able to use the lighter for (laughs) that? Right. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Um, But also I can't just find a gun somewhere. I have to barter with either Charlie for some reason or Sawyer to get a gun uh, using stuff that I pick up there. And I also feel like there's a major discrepancy in the dollar amounts of the things. I understand that things like mangoes are pretty plentiful. So those wouldn't be worth much. And things like Apollo bars would be worth more. But it's like one of the, the fruits is like two bucks and the Apollo bar is 50 bucks. So I don't know if that's exactly a a, if that makes a lot a whole lot of sense. I don't know, but well, so now talk about a little bit, Kevin. I don't know if you're planning on getting to this or not, but like the
0: the 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 structure of the game because it's set up to play out like episodes of Lost.
1: Yeah, there's they do give you kind of. I think it's seven episodes in total. So, you know, and it gives you previously ons and the lost screen and it ends with the the typical noise that your lost episodes end with things like that. Yeah. Kind of break it up into digestible bites. The thing that is annoying at times, though, is if you if you die or have to start over, you can't skip through a lot of the dialogue and stuff you've already seen. Mm. So a lot of times I just be like, well, I guess I'll run to the bathroom in between these two scenes while this (laughs) plays out because I already know exactly what they're going to say. Uh, so that was a little annoying. I guess they hadn't figured that out at that point yet. Um, but there are other things like you get to explore the cockpit, which is pretty true to it. Although they have this thing that they make you do in the hatch and the cockpit and all these, it's like these, these electrical fuses puzzles you're trying to put like together, a mini game, right? which weren't fun at all. I just looked up the answers on my phone and just, cause, <laughs> cause a lo- again, a lot of the time I'm just playing this game to, to completion, to experience the story
0: right and it's right. not like
1: these fuse maps were like oh man I, this is so much fun i can't wait to figure it out i was like let's just get on with it just let me let me figure this out so i can open the door and move on with the story here
0: well i think the structurally the thing so I think, like i think there's some good ideas wrapped in this game that just maybe could have been executed better and i i can tell that they sat down as as a, a t- design team and said okay how are we going to take like you know the the ideas of lost the show and make them into a playable video game and and it, it seems like one of the things they came up with was well let's incorporate flashbacks into the game somehow because when i sat down to play it for the first time i did not expect there to be flashbacks you don't typically think of a of a video game as having like a narrative structure that that is conducive to flashbacks but what what the the game manages to do is that as your character starts to remember more and more things about his past because he wakes up with amnesia, right? unlike unlike most of the rest of the crash survivors, he can't remember who he is. You know, and I think he even sees somebody on the plane right before the plane crash who's somebody that he's like afraid of. and but like the flashbacks help him to remember things. So he will th- there will be something that'll trigger a flashback. And then, as a player, you go into the flashback and then you have to, search the flashback for a clue. And like, I think, isn't that right? You have it a lot more fresh on your mind than I do on mine, but don't you have to like take a photograph of something in order to remember it?
1: Right. And that's because, and I guess we can bleed this into the story. Uh, you eventually find out your name is Elliot Maslow. You are a photojournalist who went to Australia because you're chasing a story that is trying to expose these shady ties between this character named Zoran Savo who only exists in the game, uh, as does Elliot Maslow and Lisa, who is both his competitor in the world of photojournalism, but also you get the sense that they have some sort of romantic, you know, thing because there can never be platonic relationships between a man and a woman. on lost.
0: Right. Right. (laughs)
1: And you're basically both competing for the same expose story on Zoran Savo, who has ties in with the Hanso Foundation and Thomas Middlework. You actually get to see Middlework, and I think he has a meeting with Charles Widmore. I think it is at the end, or it's someone who resembles very closely to Charles Widmore. Essentially, you're in these like sort of foggy scenes, and you're supposed to be taking pictures of, of stuff in those foggy scenes to trigger a memory to kind of put all this stuff together. One, you learn your name, and one, you learn this other thing, and one, you learn how. Uh, because Lisa, you you realize, is dead, the person you've been competing with. And you realize, at one point, they think you may have killed her because you have all this shady mm-hmm. stuff on your computer that that uh, that Said was able to crack, and they don't trust you. But he says, oh, it's because I'm chasing the story, and there's that's why I have this information on there, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, the, the video thing, the taking of the photographs in your memory of it's it's i i think a a creative way to come up with the flashbacks but it's not the most like fun thing to do either
0: right well like i said i think they just got together and they thought you know okay how do we make this like the an episode of lost and maybe had some good ideas in theory that just weren't executed as well as they could have been because i I mean i i like the idea of the bartering because you kind of you get little hints about that in the in the the show where i think like you know uh Shannon talked about how everybody was bartering for more sunscreen, and uh, you know, saw these little things that that could have been interesting. That that just there's not any one thing that gets used enough in the game that it feels like it's worth your time to invest very much time in it. You know, like most of the stuff that you need, you don't have to barter in order to get. Right. So it's not like you're like la- it's not like an RPG where you're like oh I got to build up five thousand gold so I can go buy this new armor. It's kind of like oh there's torches oh well, one torch and I'm done with the maze so you know now I don't need the torches anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at one point you have to go find your camera. This is like really early on in the game because you get attacked by this other survivor who kind of disappears, whose name is Beady Eyes. That's his. That's not his actual name, but that's just sort of the the gimmick name they give him who's a bodyguard of this Zoran Savo fellow who ordered him to follow Elliot onto the plane to destroy the photographs that he had taken, the incriminating evidence. So that's partially some of the reason that he's trying to to put his memory together, because he doesn't have this photographs to look at. And you find your your camera on the cockpit of the plane. And then the way the game wraps up is you eventually make this deal with Ben and Juliet to bring Jack to the Black Rock, uh, where Tom meets him. And then you change your mind and you help, uh, Jack and Kate, because Kate gets captured too. Escape, and Juliet then helps you get to this boat, which takes you off the island. So it's very similar to a deal Michael made, where he does something, he gets the list of names to them, and then Michael gets to leave the island. It's the same thing with you. If you don't make it in time, your boat gets blown up by by dynamite, similar to the way the raft did. Uh, the same, same little pontoon boat they come up on, but if you do make it in time, Locke helps you escape off the Island, which is very different than the way the actual Locke would act in real life. But in the game, he says, you know, I have my own path. You have yours, uh, yours is off the Island to let everybody know what really happened to Lisa. Cause I think many people off, uh, you get the idea that people think that he murdered her, but he wants to be able to go expose the truth. But the way the game ends is as you're on the boat, as your character leaving, you see the, the the plane crash of Oceanic 815 over your head, which is really weird because it happened and you were a survivor. But then you wake up on the island after that, very akin to Jack, and Lisa, still alive, runs up to you saying, like, oh, thank goodness we're both alive. Uh, and that's the end of it. So you're supposed to think, was this a dream? Was Is there a timeline thing going on? Did something happened with the electromagnetism because uh, what I failed to mention is before you watch the plane crash, you hear the same humming noise that happened when all the electromagnetism was released from the hatch
0: Hmm. uh,
1: in the end of season two. So there's, I think a lot of theories about there being alternate timelines as electromagnetism. Was it a dream, et cetera, et cetera, going on with this main uh, story of the show. But again, it is the story itself is not canonical to the show. So you're almost like, well, then what was the purpose of playing this game?
0: Yeah, well, and I I remember at the time they were saying that it was semi-canonical, which is we're butchering the English language at such a level now when we say that, because canon is canon. It's kind of like saying something's very unique to to me, saying something semi-canonical. Anyway, uh, (laughs) but the producers had said that the ending of this game would give players a clue to understanding what was going on on the island. Like that was the, that was the vague hint that they dropped. And, and it sounds just as much to me as a way of trying to bait people into buying and playing the game as it does anything to be taken really seriously. And and then they say like so some things are canon and some aren't. Like I have a hard time believing that there's an underground tunnel between the flame and what was it the hydra or something? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, the, but that makes sense for the game because you have to get from this point to this point during this sequence of events and so forth. But, and then there's the whole room, like the room behind the you 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 mentioned it, like behind the concrete wall where everybody's uh, metal objects were getting magnetized. Uh, that you actually see the room where the electromagnetic energy was coming from. I don't know that that's canonical, but uh, it's in there, so it's. Kind of a mixed bag, like I say, I, I and I think I told you this, and you will have to. I guess this is probably maybe the question. The ten thousand dollar question is: when you talked about playing it to talk about it for this podcast, I had said, you know, it's not a bad way to kill three or four hours of your life. It's kind of fun, but it's completely forgettable. I think that was kind of roughly what I had said. Would you would would you agree that it was worth your time to have played it?
1: I'm in the middle of of that
0: on the fence
1: that, about that yeah i wouldn't necessarily say it was a waste of my time i felt like there was better ways i could have spent my time <laughs> the thing that was really a, a a very interesting to me is there's like a four minute feature on the game on the blu-ray at uh, probably on the dvd too and i felt like watching it and hearing them talk about it what they were talking about was a much more compelling product than what we ended up with even the mm-hmm. drawing boards of what what we were going to see looks so beautiful and expansive and it just didn't flesh out of this game. I felt very, very well. I also felt like there was a lot of little things that they just ended up getting dropped. Like they, like they drop a storyline thing here and there that just kind of ultimately just got forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Like when you start the game, you find somebody in the tree who needs help. So that's why you run to the beach to try to find Jack and that never gets resolved. They don't even have Jack mentioned that they took care of the person or what happened to that person ever again. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a couple other instances that aren't as big as that, that just go unresolved. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, the game just feels like some things connect better to other parts of the story, but I don't know.
0: Maybe that's one of those cases where, uh, the thing got sort of rushed into production. I don't know too much about the background of it, but a lot of times with tie in things, they're very time sensitive. You can go back as far as the infamous example of the ET game for the Atari 2600, where the reason that game is so bad is because they had like eight weeks to make it. Because they wanted to capitalize on the success of the, the movie. When the movie was super popular, they wanted the game out before Christmas of that year. And I'm sure that Lost and ABC were like, we want this game to be done relatively quickly, quickly so that it's still riding the wave of Lost popularity. And it's not, and also so that the content is not irrelevant by the, like if it takes two years to make it and you're in the middle of season five and the game only covers events up to season three it's going to seem kind of irrelevant to the people playing the game. So I'm sure they were under a time crunch and maybe that's why some of that stuff got lost in the shuffle. No pun intended.
1: Right. And uh, the room in which the, the giant reactor with all the electromagnetism, that's called the incident room.
0: Okay. Uh, that's the,
1: room that's on the uh, the other side of the concrete wall on the swamp. Okay. So overall, my takeaways. I mean, if you're a Lost fan, I'd probably give it like a six out of ten. Okay. A Lost fan, maybe a four or a five. I think there's way better video games to play out there. I don't yeah. see any reason to play this if you're not knee deep in Lost. I mean, if you're super interested, I just honestly I would read through the Lostpedia page to kind of get a pr- clip of it. I don't even think watching like a playthrough would be all that interesting, to be honest.
0: See, I would go. Maybe I, I might be a little more charitable towards it than you are. I'd maybe give it a seven out of a ten for a Lost fan. But I'd probably say, like, a two or something if you're not a Lost fan. If you're (laughs) you're not a Lost fan, there is literally no reason to play this game, like, whatsoever. But if you are enjoying the show and you want to, you know, supplement your viewing with uh, something else that takes place in the same universe, you get your money's worth out of, like, if you pay, like, seven bucks for it, you know? or alternatively watching like a playthrough. Like I would say it'd be kind of, cause there's enough in the game that's cinematic that you could, you know, just like scenes unfolding between characters that you can have it on in the background. Like most people that I know that watch playthroughs or let's plays or whatever they they have that on in the background while they're doing something else on their computer. And that's certainly a way to experience this. So that way you haven't spent any money. You haven't wasted any of your time or anything like that, but you still get a little bit of the experience. So
1: that, that's where
0: I'd fall on it.
1: There was a couple I found on YouTube, but I felt like the people just, like, there was a lot of talking over the game, which I don't yeah. love, and also, like, this is in the infancy of playthrough, so it'd be like, Lost Svita must play through, part 27, and I'm like, what? <laughs> I gotta keep a playlist of all these? I don't know. Uh, it is only three bucks on both PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, if you're lucky enough to find it at a GameStop near you, so, there you go. I don't know, mileage may vary, but you're, you're totally okay skipping this, in my opinion.
0: You know, I I look back and although I, you know, I enjoyed the time that I spent with the game for as brief a time as it was, I've always been left thinking about what a great lost video game that could have been. I mean, it would never happen because by the time the series ended, you know, everybody was kind of ready to move on. The ending was controversial. You didn't have the same audience for it as you did, but to have a lost video game that retold the story from start to finish of the island and, and then to take some of the things that were just just briefly grazed on in this game, the idea of like a bartering system or mini games, but really like make it a real like sandbox type game. That's, is that a term people still use that was sort of used to describe like the Grand Theft Auto format of games where you just run around, there's a million different things you can do? Right. You know, like you could I could imagine a game where you could go, you could run around the island to the different stations, do missions, and then at certain intervals, you'd have the major events from the show happen. And you could design your own avatar. Like you were saying, you don't have a choice in who you play in this game. And if this was game was was made today, you'd be able to customize your avatar. I feel like you'd be able to create your own character and then interject them into the show, be one of the survivors. And and there just be there's so much potential that you could have with a game there that was just not even they they barely scratched the surface with this game.
1: Yeah, and there was no sequel or anything too, and I felt right. like I could have expanded on some of that stuff more. But uh, what can you do? I think this it's one of those things where it's 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 in the same vein as Bad Twin or some of the ARG stuff in that Lost Expanded Universe, if you will. Yeah. So I think if you're really into that, give it a whirl. But if you don't care about that at all, you're totally comfortable not even looking into this whatsoever. Yeah.
0: You know, we've had a chance to talk about a couple different Lost-related, I guess, sort of ancillary products, and that was sort of where Lost was by the end of season three. We talked about doing a little bit of a state of the Lost Union here, and what I – my intention or my thought with that was that if somebody's sort of rapid-fire watching through the show on Hulu or through some DVDs that they bought, it's easy to sort of breeze through really quickly and not really stop and take a breath and think about, like, where the show's been, how far it's come – and then, of course, if you weren't a fan at the time, you don't have any context for, you know, that evolution. Uh, we've talked a lot about it as we've gone along. But when you take back and just sort of look at the, the big picture, I think it's pretty crazy to, to watch how Lost had changed because it had evolved from like a, it, it was it started. It was a smash hit TV show from like day one. But it evolved from like sort of a pop cultural phenomenon about survival. And that was sort of this, I guess, a, a mainstream thing. It was, I think, it was would say that Lost was still mainstream at the end of season three, but it was starting to whittle down to like a more specific type of television viewer. It wasn't like America turned in tuned in for Lost every Wednesday. You know what I'm saying? Like lost fans tuned in for Lost every Wednesday, and there were yes millions and millions and millions of us. But it wasn't like you know an episode of The Big Bang Theory or something. Or I don't know. I don't know what a good comparison is. But it was. I think it was because the mythology kept getting more dense that there were people that were devotees of it, and then the folks that decided to give up when the smoke monster first showed up or decided to give up when somebody first talked about, you know, the others, those folks had sort of fallen by the wayside. And now you have like a concentrated group of like hardcore devoted fans to the show by season three. And that's pretty much where I was. As far as the show itself, Kevin, like where did when you were watching it for the first time? I know you powered through all of the first five seasons, but where did you feel like at the end of season three, as far as like where the show had gone from where it started?
1: I think it changed a lot. And I actually think there's a we have some questions and one of these gets into it, but it really does feel like the show had developed in what it was. I think it went from, and we talked about this too a little bit in the finale of season three, how it felt like it went from this it's no longer this survival show that people kind of thought it was. And now to this mythology dense show that I, that feels more akin to any of the, your other big shows that today is like, uh, I'd say it's similar to your game of Thrones or walking dead or mm-hmm. um, breaking bad. And the very story dense things with these characters that you yeah, really, yeah. that you really get to know and, and appreciate. So I think yeah. it really evolved from one, from one type of show to the other. And it's almost unrecognizable from where it started. And all of
0: those shows that you mentioned owe something to Lost in their in their either their ability to get you know <laughs> approved for a pilot, <laughs> uh, or or just the, the the nature of the storytelling. Um, yeah, I think Lost uh, is is responsible for a lot of what they're calling now you know this this current golden age of television is that they're able to take risks now that they couldn't before, all because ABC decided to take a risk on this crazy idea of a show that took place entirely on an island where insane weird shit happened to people all the time, you know, and and you mentioned some of the shows that happened after or are currently going on things like game of Thrones and so forth. One of the things that was going on during lost was by the time you got to season three and the show had been so popular, you started to see all the copycat shows start to show up. So the biggest one, the one that probably made the biggest at least on the short-term cultural impact, was probably Heroes. Do you remember Heroes?
1: I do remember Heroes. I didn't watch watch it, but I do remember the first season people loved it, and then I think a lot of people soured on it by the second or third.
0: Well, what's funny with that is the timing, because Heroes premiered uh, in the fall uh, when when Lost Season 3 was premiering. And so when people were starting to get the most frustrated with Lost – During that mini arc and during the whole like you know Stranger in a Strange Land like the basically the low point of the series probably that was right when Heroes was really taking off in popularity and so there was a there was a uh, a a mindset at the time that like oh Lost is about to jump the shark and Heroes is the new Lost and and they're going to do it right and the creators of Heroes had come out and said. Oh we've learned these lessons from all the things that Lost had done wrong. Like we're not going to st- extend mysteries out for 3 seasons. We're going to we're going to answer questions you know within a season and stuff like that. And then by the time you get to the end of that season of television, Lost had picked way back up and of course the flash forward blew everyone away and then Heroes had a like an infamously hated finale. So like people sort of did a 180 again. And then you have other shows that came in. They did uh, what a series called Flash Forward that actually had Dominic Monaghan in it. They did a revival of V that had Elizabeth Mitchell in it that never took off. So, you know, all these shows were happening at the same time that, or, or within a few years of when Lost started trying to like copy the success. And most of them, I don't think, really managed to. But then you get the ones like you just talked about that I think were more a little little freer on cable to um really push the boundaries stuff like breaking bad and so forth so right. i think and a lot lost, of it started with lost
1: right lost is such a lightning and a bottle thing too you really can't replicate the first and right. i think the 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 biggest issues with things like heroes and v were that they were trying they were trying to be like lost where i yeah. think there's character elements and and some components of lost that maybe could be borrowed or you can see the, the the fingerprints of Lost on them, but they were their own unique thing. And I think that was the best way to go about it. So right. that doesn't surprise me that these I don't want to call them exact copycats, but the shows that were more or less ta- borrowing from Lost a little bit more freely than these other shows uh, maybe didn't do so well. That doesn't surprise me at all.
0: Yeah, you can try to copy the formula, but unless you have like a creative spark or something's going to make it different, it's usually not going to work out for you. You know, whereas like meanwhile with season three of Lost, it had sort of completely re-ener- re-energized the show. You know, it had, we had been through the rocky patch where we had the mini arc. We had some bad creative decisions like Nikki and Paolo. Mr. Echo leaving is something that I I tend to forget when I think about my list of things that people didn't like about season three.
1: Yeah, actually, I'm going to throw a question out there that we got yeah. from our pal Ben Phillips. Okay. Who, uh, he co-hosts Countdown to Extinction, the Leftovers yeah. podcast here on the World Network. This is one of his questions. He said... Obviously season three is where the flashbacks start to become a bit redundant, but once stranger in a strange land is done, there isn't really a quote unquote bad episode in the last 16 episodes of the season. And then he puts in parenthesis: give or take opinions on Trisha Tanaka slash expose, which we can say this podcast is pro both. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I digress. Where do you think the reputation that this is probably the weakest season bar season six comes from? And well, I can't really say what it is about season six, uh, more or less, if liked or, or or hated, because I only watch it the one time, so I don't have that strong opinions on it. But I think we did cover this a little bit in the finale about what makes. What, why people think of season three so unfavorably. In my opinion, it's that I think people tend to dwell on the bad parts of shows more than the the best parts of them. And I think the the six-episode arc and Stranger in a Strange Land plus Mr. Echo leaving, all of that blends together in these people's minds and makes them forget about some of the really stronger elements of season three, like the ending, in uh, the last few episodes of the season. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I... It's so black and white,
0: like the first half of the season versus the second half to me. That's part of it. There are a lot of different time periods where people jumped off the show. We've talked about before, but I think people who maybe stopped watching in season three, they would have hit their limit with things like how repetitive the flashbacks had become and how uninteresting some of them had become. Or like if a character like Echo dies or Nikki and Paolo are just annoying the hell out of you there's so many missteps in the first half of season three that the producers of the show are perfectly willing to admit to. They'll admit that they were problems, but they'll also say that, you know, a lot of it came from the fact that they were sort of treading water at that point, not really knowing how far they could push the story, not knowing when it was going to end. But if you, if you were watching the show and you sort of jump ship on it then, or if you were part of the cultural zeitgeist that was sort of embracing heroes and saying loss was sort of, old news at that point then maybe you didn't come back for the second half when the narrative got really strong again and so you just had that impression that Lost really jumped the, the shark with its third season and didn't 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 make it to the point where it completely re, re- reinvented itself with the flash forwards you know i mean the producers when the a- after that season finale aired the producers came out and said you know that going forward well episodes might be flash forwards or flashbacks so that the format the format is really open now and that they'd be using this as like a new storytelling device to open up you know audience expectations for the show but if you if you judge season three just by the first half you're not going to get any of that and all you see is a show that's really starting to try to grasp at straws to keep itself interesting
1: does that make sense it does make sense i think they're especially if you're somebody who loved one and two Watched the beginning of season three and sucked you jumped off it never watched the back half of three four five and six and then you heard about how the show ended your your opinion of of both the show and season three is going to be colored a lot differently yeah. i think so i think there's a lot of those people because there are so many people who did exactly that who left the show after that point in season three and never returned or if you ask them their opinion on loss they're going to say season three is awful
0: Right. Well, and also I, I would say too that there there are just as many people who stopped watching the show at cert- a certain point in two and three and then came back for the series finale, like kind of just like, oh, you know, this huge cultural phenomenon's ending. Let me watch the series finale of Lost. And there's a lot of story that happens in the next two and a half years of the show and they're completely lost. And no wonder they ended up with the certain frustrations. I mean, we're going to have a ton to talk about when we get to season six because I am a staunch season six defender. And and I know season six was a certain, another certain contingent of the fans started to turn against the show and the end re- ending is really controversial. But I will defend that all the way and actually um kevin that actually leads into one of our other questions if you want um if you want to just jump right into another one
1: so i know the one you're going to bring up um okay but but let me bring up his second question because it actually ties back into what we were just talking about in terms of the writing and the movement of the show he says after a lot of writer turnover in the first two years the big writers on season three stick with the show for the rest of the run Does this start to give the show a different feel as it more definitively moves away from a, quote unquote, realistic survival show to something that is more steep in genre conventions? And I think that does kind of tie into what we talked about. But to be honest with you, I guess I never gave into the consideration that writer turnover would have also played a part in that, too. Uh, But I guess I'd have to imagine it would have to right? I think everything just sort of gets
0: streamlined as a series goes on. you know I think about if, if I think about most of the series that I love that are like all my favorite shows over the years, you watch and within a few seasons when the show when when the show has sort of crystallized what it is, it makes sense that certain writers are gonna settle down into that and there's not gonna be as much turnover. Like they're gonna, it's just like uh, by that point they had started having a more consistent group of directors. You know, you could always expect that Jack Bender was gonna direct all the most significant episodes. You could always expect that Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof would be writing the most pivotal episodes and so forth. And it just kind of it kind of evolved into a more well-oiled machine because it had defined itself. And I think particularly with Lost, which is a show that I think had something like, what, 13, 16 weeks, something from that, from, from Green Light to the first episode being finished. It was like one of the most abbreviated production periods ever for a TV show. And how quickly they they made the first episode, and the producers talk about it all the time about how quickly they sort of had to figure out the show, like as it was running. That there's naturally going to be a lot of turnover in the beginning until they find their footing, and then. But by season three, they had settled on that end date. They had a clear game plan. The writers knew the direction they wanted to take the show, even though they didn't know necessarily all the little details, but. I think that makes sense to stay with the same group of writers. What do you think? You're you're more the writer expert than me.
1: Well, I, I do think it's one of those things where it's not as simple to say that the writer turnover is what changed the direction of the show, but I do think it plays a part in the puzzle of just the way everything happened to shake out.
0: Well, I guess what I was saying is I feel like the change in the direction of the show informed the the reduction in turnover of the, the writers. So Interesting. Kind
1: of, okay. So yeah, maybe obviously. they do they do those two ideas do coexist with each other where they saw an idea to change the direction of the show. And to do that, they needed to get different voices, fresh voices in there and people who maybe had the same line of thinking that aligned with this new direction rather than it did back in season one and two. I think that makes sense to me as well. Um, But for your question, yes, we're talking about, uh, we talked about season where season three falls and, uh, Ben throwing out that little bit there that maybe it's the most hate season. Aside from season six, this brings us to a question you received, Ben.
0: We actually got a couple questions from a personal friend of ours. Um, you might have, if you've been listening to the podcast, you might remember that a few episodes in, we, uh, I think we made some comparisons. Uh, we were talking about leadership, and we made fun of Cyclops from the X-Men. <laughs> yes, and uh, <laughs> we have a friend <laughs> who really likes Cyclops, and uh, we said to ourselves, oh, he's never going to hear this. Let's just trash talk Cyclops. Well, lo and behold, not only did he start listening to the podcast himself, but he even uh, just recently got his wife to start watching uh, Lost for the first time, and so she has a couple of questions for us. Um, they're a little bit more uh, sort of bigger picture questions, but basically what she asked was she wanted to know how we rank the seasons and why without giving spoilers, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting challenge because she uh, she is midway through season two right now, right. Uh, I asked for an update from from Jimmy. So I'll throw out uh, the number, the ranking, but then I'll just give a more general idea of why the seasons tend to rank the way they do for me. My ranking goes one, four, six, three, two, five. I am in an extreme minority, just talking to other Lost fans, I think in that a lot of people's season five is their favorite. I tend to like a season more when it focuses on the character development rather than genre conventions and so if that's an indication of what you can expect from you know coming seasons that's my ranking season two is pretty low on there as well and i we talked about at the end of season two kevin you and i talked about how uh while there was a lot of stuff to like in season two and we liked some of the mysterious stuff like the hatch and getting more information about the others and the tail section people and everything that there was also a lot that felt like it was a step backwards in season two. So those are the episodes that tend to rank lower for me, where I feel like even if we get a whole bunch of new cool stuff thrown at us, if it doesn't ultimately serve the characters that I care about, then I'm not going to be as interested. What about you, Kevin?
1: I don't feel comfortable giving a rating of the seasons one because I forget so much about four, five, and six. When I watch the, uh, like I was telling you before, when I watch the Mobisodes on the bonus features of the bonus disc of season four, uh, the menu involves a yet-to-be-discovered Dharma station that I have literally no memory about whatsoever. <laughs> um, there's bits and pieces, and the bigger parts, of course, of those seasons I, I remember very vividly. But otherwise, episode by episode and other things, I don't remember it well enough to give a definitive rating of 1 through 6. Um, so I would I give Ben a little bit more v- uh, validity in what he said because he's watched the show significantly more than I have. Too by, much. By-
0: more than most humans should have. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But you know what? L- why don't you ask me this again when we do our show wrap up at the very end? Yeah,
0: of, of course. Absolutely.
1: So stay tuned, Ashley.
0: Well, I think I think that maybe what we can at least say is that it – or at least – I mean, and I'm not trying to speak for you or anything. But it sounds like to me from our conversations that we've had over the course of the podcast so far is that while we love the mysteries, we love like cool reveals, shock twists, surprises, and everything like that, we do tend to like the episodes that – do something for the characters that like uh, whether it's it's learning something about a character or the audience developing sympathy for a character i mean i would put something like Juliet's a good trajectory like i think that that her character trajectory in season three was awesome like this season opened literally with her eye it's kind of easy to forget that because you know we have so many cast members that we're serving and we think of you know, Jack is sort of more or less the main character, but it's also kind of an ensemble show and everybody gets their own flashback episode. But that the season opened from Juliet's perspective and we watch her, we learn, you know, one aspect of her personality and then we see things sort of shift and that she's capable of doing some pretty crazy things like shooting picket. And then it shoots back and forth. Are you getting sympathy for her? And when they're able to make a character that's so well-rounded and well-defined like that. That's when I think lost is at its best. And I I think you and I agree on that, Kevin, is that fair to say?
1: Yes. I think that's why you and I have a more favorable opinion of things like season six than some other people do. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, probably right. So uh, let's see. We, do you, do you have another question? I know I have one more from somebody that Yeah, I've
1: got a. I believe Ashley may have sent you a second question though, too. Let's see. What did she say? When Um, when uh, when when does does the the show
0: stop being depressing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Again, I feel like you would be more well-equipped to answer this, but I'm going to say I don't know that it ever doesn't get not depressing ever. I think you just find longer lapses of happiness in some places than others. Is is that a succinct way of putting it, you think?
0: Yeah, I mean if you're talking about like just individual episodes and sort of the tone of each individual episode – I definitely think the show gets more and more intense as it goes, uh, maybe until season six. I think season six, you start to see a little bit more, let's say, uplifting uh, moments in season six, which makes sense as any conclusion you know comes along that you're going to have – if you want to have a positive ending to a show, that that would reflect in the last season of the show. But I think a lot of it's also just your approach. I mean, if she's in the middle of season two, I can understand how she might be feeling that way. Cause like what we felt in season two was that a lot of the characters that had had cool character development moments in season one then sort of got retconned. you know, Charlie, uh, oh, inspiring that he overcame his drug addiction, but then he starts to do some asshole things in season two. And he it feels like he's being written a little bit differently. And then Sawyer, same thing. Like, you start to like him, and then he cons the entire beach camp out of their guns. And so if that's where she is in the show right now, I can see why she has that perspective. I would say that, that the best episodes of Lost and the best seasons of Lost have this sort of uh, hopefulness to them, even if they're in a bad situation.
1: I Um, tend to agree. Yeah. And you mentioned Charlie, and that brings uh, another question I got from Mike Thomas, one of the co-founders of the real world website. So thanks Mike for sending it in. And of course, thank you for hosting our podcast on your wonderful website. Uh, And this is, this is fresh off the heels of the season three finale. So spoilers if you didn't listen to that one for whatever reason, but (laughs) he said, do you think Charlie's story came to an effective close or was there more story to tell and why? Kevin, why don't you dive into that one first? So, I think, yes, I think it did come to an effective and satisfying close with him sacrificing himself uh, for the betterment of the other survivors, more specifically Claire and Aaron to try to get them off of the island. Um, I also think giving them our having Charlie and Claire have a kiss before he ultimately does so is everything that the fans wanted. However, I do think there could have been so much more done between i'm specifically thinking back to fire and water where charlie really goes off the deep end with aaron and claire and to where they get to in season three where they have reconciled i feel like there wasn't enough work put in and a not and not enough that was done to redeem charlie between from where charlie is and from fire water to the end of season three i feel like there just wasn't a more effective story told to get Charlie to that point. Even if it is the point that I do find to be satisfactory and where we wanted Charlie, does that make sense?
0: Yes. And I think that what you're talking about is I guess some inconsistency of the character probably lends where your, your beef is there. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like that, the character was written kind of inconsistently like you, if you're a writer in season three and the character was inconsistently written in season two, from season one, you're kind of, you've got this mess of a character dump in your lap, and then you got to figure out how to deal with it. And sometimes you just say, let's just move on. And things sort of reverted back to the status quo with Claire and Charlie a little faster than you're saying maybe they should have.
1: Yeah, I just don't feel like there, I, I can't f- put myself in a position to believe that Claire would fully have forgiven Charlie or that he would have done enough to redeem himself mm-hmm. to the point where they would have gotten to the point of being romantic again at the, by the end of season three. That's yeah. just my opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the more, to me, the, the perspective I looked at it from was not so much even Charlie's departure from the show, but Dominic Monaghan's as the actor. And thinking about giving that character a good send off, certainly the ultimate sacrifice that he makes in the the season finale is a worthy send-off for the character. I feel like Dominic Monaghan was saddled with a character who was kind of similar to Walt in this sense that maybe it wasn't as well thought out from the beginning because with Walt, they always say, well, you know, we started this show not knowing if it was going to last very long, and then as soon as we realized it was going to be, like, this mega-hit, long-lasting show, but that we were making one day equal approximately one episode that that kid was going to grow up too fast. And we had to get him the hell off the Island. They've said that. And then with Dominic Monaghan, it's kind of like, well, we've got this you know star who's pretty well known coming off of Lord of the Rings and we're giving him a character arc who, as soon as his character gets over his heroin addiction, what do you do with him? Right. And I think it took a season for them to figure out what to do. They didn't know what to do with him in season two. And then in season three, I think what I like is that they finally gave him another arc that gave Dominic Monaghan something cool to do with the character. They came up with this idea that, that Desmond and, and, uh, and Charlie were somehow connected and that Desmond was seeing Charlie die. And then it culminates in Jar- Charlie sacrificing himself for everybody, that that was an arc that was worthy of the character and worthy of the actor and the, 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 you know, the investment that fans had made in that character, it just took a season to get there where you have this rough, you know, this rough middle area with Charlie's character. From the story perspective, it results in what you're talking about, where it felt like maybe it, the transition wasn't as good. But ultimately, I think it was a great end to the character. There's characters that die and they they die, they die so quickly they don't leave an impact or it seems really abrupt. I mean, Echo's death seemed really abrupt because he just we just kicked off season three and then they kill him off. And, of course, we know that was for reasons that were beyond the writer's control. But with Charlie, it seemed like when you had a full season to get used to this idea of what his trajectory was going to be, that when they pulled it off, they really pulled it off well.
1: It almost feels like in a way with Charlie, like you said, it took a whole season to do it. I feel like with The Office, it took them two seasons to finally figure out how to do the show without Michael. Yeah. And then when they finally figured out how to do it, it was over.
0: Yeah, because, like, the back half of season nine of The Office is a pretty good show again, but it takes a while to get there.
1: Yep, for sure. As season
0: eight is generally terrible except for Robert California, who I think is hilarious, but that's probably just because I like James Spader. But – um. Yeah. Uh, that's another podcast, <laughs> right? A whole other podcast.
1: But when you said that, that's exactly what I thought of.
0: Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, no, I, I like Charlie's send off. Charlie was never my favorite character, but I think he, what he contributed to the show in seasons one through three was really important. And I also would say that his absence in the next season helps to set some of the tone of that. Um, obviously there's going to be impact on the characters, Because of his death, which of course, the vast majority of them don't know about yet when we leave them uh, in the season finale. But even just in terms of the tonal change of the show, I think it's going to be noticeable that Charlie's not there. So kind of be on the lookout for that.
1: And I think you had one last question for
0: us. Yes. So I had a question from our friend Rosie who has been listening on and off to the podcast. And she's one of our old school uh, compatriots of watching the show when it was airing. So uh, she sent me a question. um, And I'm going to have to rephrase it just a little bit to avoid a spoiler. But Mm -hmm. her question was basically, how did Walt's special abilities relate to the island and its pull on other characters? So that's a good question. We talked about this a little bit that there, are, I think, are some people that are just coined as being special in the lost universe. And with the case of Walt himself, it sounds like those powers were manifesting before he got to the island because you have the episode special all the way back from season one, where uh, Brian, the guy who was, uh, uh, Walt's adoptive father, who turns out to be kind of a jerk because he wants to get rid of Walt as soon as Walt's mother dies, but he's also kind of—I guess what kind of goes along with that—is he almost seems a little scared of Walt. If you remember that scene, yep,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, just saying like he shows up in places he's not supposed to be, and he uh, like there's something weird about him, and so forth. And we're we're fed that from very early on in the show. This thing about Walt, so. What, what will be interesting to see is if there are other characters like that and whether that's limited to what they're like on the island or if they're there, they have those abilities from birth. And then with Walt having just recently reappeared on the show, you know, he was in that season uh, three finale just long enough to uh, tell John to get up because he had work to do, which was our, our carryover uh, phrase from um, the Mobisode, actually becomes one of those recurring phrases on Lost. you have work to do to see where where that goes. you know we've already said in this podcast that Harold Perrineau is returning. I don't think anybody would be surprised if Walt's had uh, resurfaced at some point as well. so but I will say that by the end of season three with Walt having just reappeared, he was at the forefront of people's minds and uh, remained so uh, even though he had really only been on the show for one season as a regular. That he's still something that's yet to be addressed, and fans were still talking about a lot what was going on with Walt.
1: Right. And for me, when I, and it's not just Walt, but I think by the time you get to the end of season three, and you get things like Jack saying, telling Kate, you know, we were meant to be on the island, we need to go back. I think the sense that you get is when you get people who are special, like Walt and Locke, and you get somebody like Jack, who is a spinal surgeon who crashed on an island that just happened to have an inhabitor who had a tumor on their spine, you get the sense that something brought all these people to the Island for, mm-hmm. for a reason and a purpose, this particular collective of people. Yeah. So I think when I think of how it affected the other survivors, I just think that, They all there's all a particular meaning with all these particular group of survivors being on the island, you know, with Hurley and the numbers and Charlie meaning to sacrifice himself and this, that and the other. I think that picture starting to come into frame more and more clearly as the show moves on.
0: Causality is a big thing to think about with the show. Yes. You know, you see that manifest in a lot of different parts of the show. One of the things that was. You know, is a, fa- a famous aspect of the show that we always look for is the way that the characters' lives crisscross with one another before the island, such as something as small as them walking past each other in the airport to something as big as Jack and Claire being half siblings and still having no idea that that's the case. Right. Or... Kate being the one who suggested to Cassidy that she should turn Sawyer in for uh, uh, for conning her and and neither of them has any idea But cause cause and effect. You know, we we live in a a big world, but the things that we do have like a domino effect that affects uh, millions of other people's lives without us ever realizing it. I think that's one of the big themes of the show and that'll continue to play out in the next
1: three seasons. So, anything else you want to get to, or how do you feel about wrapping up the episode here? I
0: think that's it. I've been I've been sort of tap dancing around, uh, you know, this midway point and not wanting to give spoilers for future seasons. And I think think overall we did a pretty good job. Hopefully, uh, if you're watching the show for the first time and following along with us, then maybe uh, uh, if anything, uh, we've succeeded in in sort of wetting your appetite for the the final three seasons of the show. I know that I am definitely psyched about jumping back into the show Um, you and I are not going to podcast for a little bit here because we've got some stuff going on well they won't Uh, know that because they won't know that there will be uninterrupted once a week but for us I'm waiting Uh, I'm saying uh, I guess that it's going to be a little wait of a few weeks for us to podcast again and I'm excited about it because season four uh, as I did my ranking there it is my second favorite season I love season four and I really just can't wait to dive right into it.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm very excited to to rediscover season four all over again, and uh, yeah, without getting into too much spoilers with uh, with Naomi and all that brings brings some uh, an, one of my all time favorite lost characters coming up here. Yes, sure. so, uh, so with that, uh, and I do want to mention that just because we asked for questions for this particular episode, you can send in questions or comments any old time you want either to our Twitter at LostPod or at LostPodQuestions at gmail.com. Anything you have as you go through the episodes, even if you're well behind, please send your correspondences. and We'll even read them on the air if we uh, we feel so inclined. Again, new episodes drop on Mondays. You know where to get them by now as you're listening to this, and you can follow me on Twitter at K413, Ben.
0: Well, you can check out my online comic that I wrote with my writing partner, Marjorie. Uh, it's called Neopolitine, and that's at neopolitine.com, N e o p o l a t i n e.com uh you can download it there and then you can also follow us follow us on uh, instagram twitter and facebook search string neopolitan
1: all right that'll do it next week we'll be back to our regularly scheduled program as we delve into the season premiere of season four of lost see you then see look at that jumps and then it freezes it's
0: frustrating it's very frustrating i'm missing all my shows Hmm. lost Oh. Last week, you know that guy they killed off the previous week. Don't don't tell me. I don't want to know. He's not dead. He's back. He came back. I just told you not to tell me. Shocking. Are you nuts?